Habakkuk uh, chapter 2. Let me just wel- welcome you again and welcome to our guests as well, Rebecca and Beth. Great to have you with us um, again. I'm going to read our portion to us in a minute. We're in uh, chapter 2, verses 6 to 17. Let me just pre-warn us. It's heavy. This morning, the text is heavy. Uh, God is going to pronounce judgment on on Babylon. And we've seen, haven't we, over the last few weeks, just the context that Habakkuk is written into. This is 600 years or so uh, BC. So this is nearly 3,000 years ago. But hopefully we've seen uh, each week that, that God is speaking through his word uh, to Judah, but to us as well. And we see directly how God is applying these truths to us. So the context, let's just remind ourselves, God is speaking to Habakkuk, who is a prophet in Judah. And Judah are just in this moment in history where there is severe moral decline. They've seen the highs and now they're experiencing the real lows of idolatry and just rampant sin through the nation. And God comes to Habakkuk. Habakkuk's been crying out to God, asking if he's going to do something. Is he going to move against the injustice, the, the wickedness, the sin that he sees? And God says, yes, I, I am. I'm going to bring the Babylonians, the enemies of God's people. I'm going to raise up the Babylonians to bring about my judgment. It's going to take Judah into exile and they're going to experience the judgment of God there. But last week we saw just this glimmer of hope in the midst of the darkness that as God's people go into exile, all is not lost. God gives them this great promise to stand on in Habakkuk 2, 4. He says, when you're there, you can hold on to this promise that the righteous shall live by what? Faith. The righteous shall live by faith. And we took a great hope that actually we can claim that hope. God's people can stand on that promise that as sometimes we feel like we are in exile, we feel like foreigners in a strange land as Christians, we feel like actually we just feel just like we're pushing against, against, against the tide, swimming upstream. We can stand on the promise that all will be okay in the end because the righteous shall live by faith. Righteous which we haven't earned by ourselves but righteous which comes from God through his son, Jesus Christ, by the power of his Holy Spirit, through faith, which in itself is a gift. And then every day from the moment we are saved, we are sustained by that same faith. God's people are in exile. Babylon are going to make things seriously difficult for them. And God this morning is going to put flesh on the bones of, of how brutal exile is going to be, but also how he will not let Babylon get away with it. He will not let the wicked go, go just and do what they want without God doing something. He will intervene. There are two questions I think that this passage will lead us to this morning, and two questions I want us to answer. The first one is this. What will God do with the unrighteous? What will he do with the wicked? What will he do with the evil? What will he do with Babylon? What will he do with the unrighteous of our day? I want us to answer that question first. And then in the second part of our time, answer this question. What will God do with the righteous? What will God do with the righteous as we live under the wickedness and the evil and the oppression of Babylon or whatever we want to interpret Babylon to be today? So let's read this together starting in verse 6 Habakkuk chapter 2 woe to the Chaldeans or the Babylonians 
Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, and this is God speaking, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble, then you will be spoiled for them because you have plundered many nations. All the remnants of the people shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to the cities and on all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision the cup in the lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory the violence done to lebanon will overwhelm you as will the destruction of the beasts that terrify them for the blood of man and the violence to the earth to the cities and all who dwell in them that's a long passage bearing in mind the last few weeks we've done one verse <laughs> we're covering a lot of ground in there and i appreciate it is heavy and maybe we're getting a bit lost in the words there but fundamentally we're going to see god answer these two questions what will god do with the unrighteous and what will he do with the righteous as we live under the rule and under the pressure of the unrighteous around us so firstly what will god do with the unrighteous what is god going to do with babylon we know from god's word this God will not leave their sin and their wickedness unchecked. God's word says this, that he opposes the proud. And he is speaking here, he is assuring Habakkuk that Babylon will not have the last word. All of Judah, the the righteous men and women in Judah and the unrighteous men and women in Judah, all of them are going to go into exile. All of them are going to experience the, the heavy hand of Babylon around them. But God is assuring Habakkuk that Babylon will not have the last word. The wicked and the evil and the unrighteous will not have the last word. He will bring their rule. He will bring their oppression to an end. And so in the passage in chapter 2, all the way through chapter 2, you see God pronouncing five woes. Did you hear that repeated word? Three. We read four of them this morning. There are five woes. We're going to see the last one. And next week we're in verse 6, 9, 11, 15. You see God give five woes. And actually in the original translation, that word woe is, is kind of more directly translated as ha, as God almost laughing. And, and what God is doing here, it's as if he's standing and speaking to Babylon and he's like, really? You think you're going to get away with that? You think that you can just run free with your evil and you really? You think I'm not going to do anything? Come on. God pronounces these woes to put Babylon back in their place and his message is clear to them. God will punish the unrighteous. He will. He will punish Babylon. And actually, the description that we've just read through there, it's a little bit complicated, but history will tell us that exactly as God describes punishment come to Babylon, that's exactly what happens. 
The Persians rise up and they overwhelm and take over Babylon almost in a night as Babylon, as the rulers of Babylon, indulge himself on wine. God will punish the unrighteous. He will punish Babylon. And folks, I need to say this. He will punish anyone who stands against him. When we think of the unrighteous, let's not just think, oh, it's Babylon or it's North Korea or it's those really evil. We've done this already, folks. We were here last week. The unrighteous man or woman is anyone who stands against God. Anyone who does not profess God as their Lord and their Savior. They are the unrighteous because remember, we are not made righteous on our own. God makes us righteous. He gives us right standing through the finished work of his son on the cross. And unless we are found in him, we are found to be unrighteous. And it is clear, clear in this verse is that for the unrighteous, judgment is coming. The wrath of God is coming. And we don't like that word, do we? The wrath of God. Maybe when we hear that, we find ourselves just feeling a little bit uncomfortable. It is, and I'll be honest, I feel it as well. It is that, that one aspect of God's character that we just feel a little bit uncomfortable with. But, but actually, a lot of that, a lot of the reason that we feel uncomfortable with the wrath of God is just because of the cultural moment that we live in. Culturally, and I say this all the time because I really want us to learn and to see through culture, to see truth. Culturally, the moment that we live in raises up the individual as the king and queen. We know that, right? That we are the center of the universe. We are the kings and queens of this world. And anything in this life that feels like it is is impinging on our liberties, we feel like we need to push back against that. We need to kind of push those things away because we should be able to do what we want. But that is the cultural moment that we live in. It's not always been like that. Let me just give us three examples. School. Like a lot of you are teachers here and you know exactly what I'm talking about. Even when I was uh, in school, which was only 20 years ago, not that long ago, it was very different. Like you could not get away with the things that some kids get away with in school at the moment. I'm not too sure he was allowed to, but one of my teachers would, would literally lift up the boys against the side of, of the room. Like he was, he was aggressive and probably pushed it too far. But I know some of you in this room will, will remember kind of coming home with red marks on your hands. Am I, am I right, guys? Yeah, because there was discipline in school. Like you just wouldn't even dream of speaking up against the teacher because you knew what was coming. And now... You can't even use red pens. Like teachers aren't allowed to use red pens and kind of write those comments that I found really helpful that that would kind of correct me and and help me to try harder. But teachers are now trained actually to be more sympathetic and, and lighter with the way they dish out discipline. It's a cultural moment that we live in. Our kids are little princes and princesses and we need to treat them like that. What about discipline in the home? Like the wooden spoon in my house was the implement. Like my mom, my mom is this big. When she had that wooden spoon in her hand, we knew what was coming and we got out the way. And now some of you might think, well, I'm not too sure where I sit on that. But, but now you look at how the government is pushing in terms of how families can discipline and how they can't. In Scotland, you're not allowed to, to raise your hand against your child. And again, this is an area for discussion. I'm not saying whether that's right or wrong. But what we are finding in this cultural moment is that actually discipline is being, is being dictated to us to elevate the individual. To protect the individual and to treat them. And in some ways, guys, hear me, that is right. But in some ways, it actually just makes us worse people. Because sometimes it's right for us to be told how to live and how not to live. The third example would be the wrath of God. We get uncomfortable with talking about the wrath of God. 
In some places in the country, you will end up in jail if you stand on the street corner and tell people that God is coming for them in judgment. That is the cultural moment that we live in. Here's what's interesting. On the back of World War II, if you talked about the wrath of God as a good thing, there would be a resounding, yes, the wrath of God is a good thing. The judgment of God is a good thing. It is good that God punishes wickedness. It is good that God stands opposed to wicked men and women. It is good, like that was the cultural moment that they lived in and we are far away from there now. But we need to see, folks, wickedness against each other. Wickedness of a man and woman against another man and woman is not just wickedness between those two. There is a vertical aspect as well. When we sin against each other, when we rebel against each other, when we are wicked against each other, we are sinning ultimately against God. Because we are made in his image. We are his creation. He is our creator. He is our rule giver. And so when we break God's rules, we are breaking his rules. When we break his image, we are breaking his image. Now we've done some work here already in terms of how God will deal with the unrighteous. But I just want to go over a few things today just to make it really clear that God will not stay idle against the unrighteous. And in the passage we just read, we see kind of four, four ways, four, four of these woes, that the ways that God will judge, the, God, the way that God will, will reveal his wrath against the unrighteous. And the first way is this. In verse 7 and 8, we see that the unrighteous, God's wrath for the unrighteous will look like them being found out. So for Babylon in particular, this looks like for them, those that they have oppressed, the nations that they have oppressed, the people that they have oppressed will then rise up against them. They'll be found out. God does not forget evil, folks. No individual, no nation, no leader will get away with evil. At the right hand, God will punish them. And often we see God's active wrath. That's what we see with Babylon. God doesn't hold back like he brings his wrath upon Babylon. He judges them. He removes them from their place of position and he rolls out his punishment to them. Where are Babylon now? They're gone. God dealt with them. But also we see the passive wrath of God where he holds back. And that is a fearful place to be because his wrath will still come one day. All the unrighteous will be found out. Secondly, we see their security will become insecurity. In verse 9 to 11, we see that Babylon build these great cities, this fortress city, and it is built by slaves. It is built on oppression. And God says, those slaves, the ones that you have oppressed, will cry out against you. And here, folks, we have a great hope, a great promise, promise that God hears the cry of those who have been dealt with unjustly. And God will always defend those and he will punish those who act with injustice. And if they think they have some security, God will strip that away from them. And again, he will may do that while they live. Aren't we seeing that at the moment with celebrities and high profile individuals who have a history of, of abuse of some sort? And they think that they can just stand in their privileged position, whether they're politicians or celebrities or just people who've got lots of money. And they can hide in, in their wealth or hide around their, their wealthy uh, friends. And, and what is happening? God is exposing them. The things that they found security in are now turning their backs on them. And their sin is being revealed. 
And God will do that maybe while they live, but certainly after they have left this life. What they thought was security will become insecure to them. They will lose everything. There is a chilling indictment in verse 10. You have forfeited your life. That is the indictment of God towards the unrighteous. You have, you have given up on your life. What you thought was life, that's not life. If you want to walk in unrighteousness, if you want to live outside of the, the peace and the flourishing environment that God has with his people, you have forfeited your life and there is no security for you. The third point is this, that civilization will be replaced by devastation. We see that in verses 12 to 14. Again, when a civilization is built on the foundations of violence and injustice, it has already sown seeds for its destruction. We see that, don't we, with um, just different nations that are around us. Don't look at nations like, like North Korea, like Iran, and think, well, they're just going to flourish, like they're going to increase in their power and their, their influence. They have built their civilizations on violence and injustice, and God will deal with them. And let's not be so arrogant to think he won't do that with us. The British Empire, folks, was built on slaves for the most part. God will judge those who have engaged in that. God will not turn a blind eye to violence and injustice. What those people thought was raising up civilization will end up to bring about their destruction. And in verse 13, God says it looks like fire. Fire, whenever we read that in the Bible, we should, we should think destruction. And here's the last thing that we see. One of the ways that God's wrath will be revealed. In verses 15 to 17, their glory the unrighteous, what they think was their glory, will turn to shame. See, Babylon went around and they made other nations drink from their cup of wrath. They were brutal, they were violent, they were aggressive, and they would seduce other nations just to take advantage of them. But God says the tables will turn. And in verse 16, he gives this quite graphic metaphor of their, their nakedness being revealed. They will be exposed and they will sit in their shame because of their sin. What they once thought was going to bring about their glory will bring about their shame. That is always where sin leads, folks. That is always where unrighteousness leads to. Shame. And they will experience that either while they live, but certainly for eternity. Four times there, God is clear that he will execute his justice. He will not sweep human wickedness and rebellion under the rug. Every unrighteous deed, every unrighteous thought, every unrighteous motive will be accounted for. (coughs) Folks, if we are outside of God, if we are not his sons and daughters, then we will make that payment ourselves. We'll be judged by God and God calls that judgment hell. That is a place where we do not experience the love of God. If you're a Christian here this morning, we can take hope. And we can stand in the promise that the same is true for us. Every unrighteous thought, word, motive, deed that we have done will need to be accounted for. And it has been accounted for. All of it, every single one, past, present and future, every single one has been accounted for, paid for in full. 
at the cross of Jesus Christ. And last week our encouragement was then come to Jesus. Come to him because of what he has done. Come to him because of the identity in which we stand. Come to him because he has not just taken away our sin, but he has given us his righteousness. We stand in that righteousness now. We are seen by God the Father as his righteous ones. And so, why do the righteous, why do the righteous endure? Because there will have been some. Why do the righteous endure? Why do the righteous who live now, you and I, if you are a Christian, why do we still experience the heavy hand of the wicked around us? Why did God not just leave that little remnant of Judah? And protect them and give them their own little city and say, okay, the rest of you are going to go to Babylon. You're going to be judged and you're going to suffer the wrath of Babylon. You're going to go, but my my righteous ones, they're going to be okay. Why does God not do that with us? Why does God not say, okay, I've saved you now. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to hem you in. I'm going to keep the evil and the oppressor and everything that will come and harm you. I'm going to keep you away from the brokenness of the world. I'm just going to let you flourish now. Why does he let that happen? Why does God not protect us from Sickness, from suffering, from loss, from the oppressor. If all of our sin has already been accounted for on the cross of Jesus Christ, if God has already pronounced victory over his enemies at the cross, why, if we're honest, why does it still feel like we're Judah in exile sometimes? Because God is refining us. That's what he's doing. In the midst of our oppression, in the midst of our sickness, in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our loss, in the midst of that feeling like we are, we are Judah in exile, just in a foreign land, in the midst of all of that, God is refining us. And we might say, God, no, I just want to get out. He is refining us. And the Bible says he is refining us for our good. There's another word that the Bible uses for this, this a picture of refining, and it's this discipline. God is disciplining us for our good. You know what he means when he says refine? Like it's when you throw that lump of, of uh, metal ore into a fire and all of the, the dirt and the impurities come to the top and you scrape all of that off and all you're left with is purity. The pure gold, the pure iron, the pure silver, whatever it is. God is doing that work in us. He is disciplining us. Folks, would you just turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12? I just want to read us a few verses just to really land this home. Ephesians uh, chapter 12, I'm just going to read verse 6 to 11 to us. Because often we think when we hear this word discipline, lots of negative thoughts come into our heads, right? Like we think of negative, uh, we think of discipline as something which is, is harsh against us or, 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 or negative against us. But actually the Bible has a different way of looking at it. Let me just read these verses. Hebrews 12, it's page 1009 if you've got one of our Bibles. And again, Ryan mentioned this before. When the writer of the Hebrews is talking about sons here, he's actually, the whole point of the book of Hebrews is to, is to show us Jesus. It's to lead us towards seeing Jesus, the son of God. So when he talks about son here, He's helping us just to sit in the example of Jesus, who is the Son of God. But let me read uh, these verses to us uh, from verse 6. The Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. 
It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. He disciplines us for our good. Why is discipline good for us? Well, the writer of the Hebrews just showed us discipline from God shows that he loves us. It shows that God loves us. Firstly, it shows that, that we are his children. He says, I'm going to act like a father acts towards his son or acts towards his daughter. I'm going to discipline you because you are my sons and you are my daughters. That's what I will do. Like as a father, I'm not going to kind of grab one of your kids and start, start spanking them because they're not my kids. But I will discipline my kids. And that is a place of honour, believer or not, Mike, or Ruth, Mike and Ruthie, when I discipline you because it shows that I am your father. And that's what God says. You are my son. You are my daughter. And so discipline is good for you because it reminds you of who you are. And secondly, in verse 10, it makes us more like Jesus. As he refines us, as he chips off those bits of sin, as he pulls away the bits that are are unclean from us, as he reveals more holiness and more purity and more goodness and more righteous, he is making us more and more and more like his son, who is the righteous one. He says we get to share in his holiness. That's what the discipline of God brings for us. It shows us that we are his sons and his daughters and it makes us more like Jesus. Hear this, discipline from God. If you are feeling pain and suffering and loss and it's not being removed from you, that is not the judgment of God. It is the love of God because he sees you as his daughter. He sees you as his son. And he wants you to be more like his precious son, the Lord Jesus. There's one pastor who says this about discipline. Discipline is is having a a vision for the future that is enacted today. It's having a picture of something that is to come and starting the work now to bring that about. That's what discipline is. Let me give us three quick examples. COVID bodies. I'm not going to get us to raise our hands, but some of us have them. Like we've just totally neglected our bodies and and some of us show it, some of us feel it, but we've just not been exercising, looking after ourselves during lockdown. And some of us are resolved now, right, I'm going to draw a line in the sand and now I'm I'm going to get fit, I'm going to lose weight, I'm going to do what I need to do. And what you're doing is you're setting a vision in front of you and you're starting the work for it today. Like you have pictures in front of you, this man with a six pack and, and, and big muscles and just a picture of health. And that is what you're working towards. It is a vision that is set before yourself that is enacted today. What about work for some of you? Some of you have big projects ahead of you, things that you need to submit. And you have a vision in front of you, don't you? This is what it needs to look like. This is the result that I need to see. And so you work back here to gain that vision. 
You start work today, you have a discipline, you have to get up early, you have to come home late, you have to put in a hard work, you have to deal with the frustrations of things working, things not working, and you have to move towards it. It is discipline that gets you to the vision that is set before you. Think about uh, as all of us as we're children. We all have mothers and fathers or have had mothers and fathers. Our parents had a vision for us. They wanted us to be certain types of boys, girls, women and men. They had a vision in front of them. And so they disciplined us back here in order to bring about that vision. I do that with my kids. I want my children to be able to go to the toilet themselves. I don't want them to walk around still going to the toilet in their trousers. So what do I do? I discipline them. I put them on the toilet. I teach them how to go to the toilet. I teach them how to brush their teeth. I teach them how to be courteous. I teach them how to love women, how to love men. I teach them all of these things. It is discipline for them, but it is because I have a vision in front of me that I want them to be like. And so I start back here. Vision for the future that is enacted today. And let me tell you, in all of those things, in exercise and dieting, in working hard the late hours and discipline our children through tears. Is it hard? Yes. Is it painful? Yes. Is it worth it? Yes. Jesus talks about it in this way in John's gospel. In John chapter 15, he says, I am the vine. My father is the vine dresser. Anything that does not bear fruit will be removed. Anything that does bear fruit will be pruned. Why? So that it will will bear more fruit. Every branch that does not bear fruit, he will take away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he will prune so that it bears more fruit. Some of you might relate to this. Some of us have city gardens, so we haven't got a clue what pruning is. Uh, my dad's got an allotment, so that's my point of reference, and he has this wonderful cherry tree in the middle of the allotment. And it bears just so many cherries. The birds love it. Like, literally, he's got a five-day window to get his cherries off this tree before the birds attack it and take everything. And every year, he hacks away at it. He strips off branches that look really good, and, and they've borne fruit that year, but dad kind of hacks away at it, cuts limbs off, cuts bits off, and trims it right back. And then what happens the next year? More fruit. That's one of the tensions that we feel, folks. When Jesus says any, any, um, anything that does not bear fruit, he takes away. I think we get that. Like areas of our life that are just dead. Areas of our life that are sin. Areas of our life that we just want to get away with. When God removes those things, we get it. But what about when, when things are going well? What about when we are walking well with the Lord? What about when things seem like we're just pursuing God and still we feel the painful hand of the Lord pruning us. I want to encourage us this morning, folks. God will use the painful circumstances that we have around us to bring about something better. If you're a son, if you're a daughter of the living God, suffering that you experience, the pain that you experience, the loss that you experience, the tension of life that you experience, God is doing something. God is doing something. It's painful, right? He's pruning you and he's going to bring about a better fruit. We felt this, just the reality of this this week. The last day of our holiday 
We had a wonderful time away. And we parked up the car on Friday, went for a walk in Nutsford, footballers uh, land, like so much money around there. We came back to our car and someone had uh, smashed through the windows of the back of the car and taken um, a, lot of, a lot of our um, kind of precious possessions in Nutsford, of all places, like as if footballers need. I'm sure it wasn't a footballer, but <laughs> of all places, like what a place to do it. Things that we needed, things that um, were really quite personal and precious to us. And the last, literally, we're on our way home from our holiday, and the last thing, and, and it's coming at a time where, like, Elizabeth and I, our marriage is fruitful, like, we're seeing fruit in our ministry. Like, I'd had a great week of just being in the Word, praying, just felt really just, just like we're walking well with the Lord, and then this happens, and I'm like, God, what, what's that about? It feels like I'm bearing fruit. What a time to prune us back. What a time for us to feel the pinch of pain. What a time for us to feel loss. And here's the hope I've had as I've spent some time in this text over the last few days. God is doing something in us that he could not have done unless that had happened. He's teaching us through loss. He's grown us through loss. He's pruning us back through loss. He is making us, and this is what we want, he is making us more like Jesus through our lives. Yes, it is painful. Yes, it is brutal. brutal. But the work of pruning is beautiful, folks. Because it makes us more like Jesus. And look at the last verse that we read in Hebrews chapter 12. This is so honest and so helpful. Hebrews 12, verse 11, for the moment, all discipline seems painful, doesn't it? Rather than pleasant. Well, here we go. Later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. That's what I want. That's what I want for you. The peaceful fruit of righteousness. And that only comes through Jesus. It is painful in the moment. It is not pleasant in the moment, but it will yield a fruit that makes us look more like Jesus. And here, I want to just tell us this last point here. This is not just for our good. The writer of the Hebrew says, discipline is for our good. But if we just flick back, if you can, to Habakkuk 2.14, it is for our good. It makes us more like Jesus. It helps us to see that we are legitimate children, sons and daughters of the living God. It is for our good, but it is also for his glory. You see that kind of random verse, verse 14, in the middle of the passage that we read? The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. As our Father disciplines us, we become more like Jesus. As we become more like Jesus, the world sees more of Jesus in us. And as the world sees more of Jesus in us, it sees more of God's glory. Habakkuk 2.14 and is God saying, my plan, and this has always been God's plan ever since the beginning, ever since he said to Adam and Eve, go forth and multiply. His plan has always been for his glory to extend all across the earth like the waters cover the sea. And how does he do that? Through you and I. Through sons and daughters who are increasingly becoming more like his son, who are increasingly bearing his image, who are increasingly showing his glory the world around us the discipline of God feels painful it feels like we just want to be removed from him 
pruning of God feels brutal. But if we see the result, if we see the work of God that he is doing in the midst of it all, we can see it as beautiful. God bringing about our good and bringing about his glory. So before we share this meal, I just want us just to be, just have a moment of quiet and prayer. And as we just, just reflect on God's word this morning, let's just ask ourselves the question, what is it that needs to be pruned in our lives to help us to grow for God's glory? Like some of these things are obvious to us. Some of these things are really clear to us. Maybe it's a lack of faith. Maybe it's a, an area of sin. Maybe it's, it's just ways of thinking or patterns of thinking that are just stunting your growth and you need God just to come and do that painful work of taking it away for your good and for his glory. Maybe it's just distractions that you have in your life. Maybe it's poor disciplines. Maybe you heard the, the, the encouragement from last week to be in God's way, to, to come to Jesus and you just struggled with it all Weak. What is it that needs to be pruned away to help you grow for glory? But maybe you don't know. And maybe you would take the risk of praying a prayer of faith and saying, God, just do a work. Strip away anything that is stopping me being more like your son. So let's just take a moment of quiet. If you want to pray that prayer, let's just bow our heads. You might just want to put your hands out and as I pray, just welcome God just to do that, that painful but beautiful work of discipline that would bring about his glory and our good. Let's just take a minute of quiet and then I'll pray for us. Father, we thank you that we are your children. We thank you, even though it's hard to pray sometimes, that the pain that we feel, the, the tension that we live in, the suffering that sometimes we, we endure, you're at work there. You could easily remove us from those situations, but you are at work and you are bringing about a greater fruit in our lives than what we can bear at the moment. So we need to trust you. Jesus, help us with that. Some of us are just really low on trust and faith this morning. Fill us up, please. By your spirit, fill us up with a faith that sees that, that our father is a good, a good father. That he loves us. And you've shown us how far that God loves us. Help us just to revel and enjoy in the truth that we are sons and daughters of the living God. Help us not to despise discipline, but to hold fast to you in the midst of it. And for some of us, Jesus, we want to pray that bold prayer to come and do a work. Prune us. Make us more like yourself by the power of your spirit. Take away the impurities. Take away the sin. Take away the things that are just hindering us from being more like you. We want to see your glory cover this earth like the waters cover the sea. And we know that you will do that through us, through your image, through your glory being shown to us and through us. So make us more like you, we pray. Holy Spirit, we need you to do that work. We depend on you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.